Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And I come to you once again, unfortunately sick. I cannot seem to shake this cold, no matter what. Unfortunately, it spread to the rest of my family, and everybody got sick. Still, still dogging me, unfortunately. Still got a little bit of a clogged nose. And uh, yeah, it's part of the reason why not a lot of other things have happened on the channel. I'm desperately trying to get the next Kenji part. <laughs> my big goal right now but unfortunately i have not been able to record because for that one i want to actually not sound like i'm dying for that particular recording in any case still suffering with that one week later unfortunately but here we are today and today don't have any stupid drama bullshit or anything like that for you guys what i have today is i guess a lecture almost something i've been wanting to talk about for a while for the show but now is finally the time to bring it together and today we're going to be talking about why i think china is pretty much screwed china has very dim prospects looking into the future and we're going to unpack that and we're going to talk about it and if you are one of those people that has been saying comrade show's great you know, it's fine up to this point, but what I really want to see more of is you drawing on a map. You are in luck because this episode is going to be that episode for you. So without further ado, let's get into it. My lecture, if you will, as to why China is doomed. So here we have the countries of the South Pacific and Asia at large that we're going to be talking about. Obviously, we have China in the center overlording everything, and uh, we are going to be using this as a reference point to be talking about why China is going to struggle and some of the serious problems that it has going into the future, which I do not think that it's going to be able to surmount. So in order to make this argument, I'm going to be using a lot of my stuff, going to be using stuff I've read, but... A lot of the foundational arguments are going to come from an individual. And you may have heard of this guy recently because he's recently become cool because he appeared on a very popular podcast. And I would like to say that I liked this individual before he was cool. In fact, if you have a keen ear, you will actually remember that I mentioned him and used one of his graphics for the very first episode. This is a man by the name of Peter Zihan. I don't know if you've seen him recently. Ever since the Ukraine war, his work has gained a lot of traction and a lot of momentum because it seems like it is coming true. I personally first encountered him back in, I can't remember, but I read his book, Disunited Nations, and it definitely shook me a little bit. And it definitely made me reevaluate some of the ways I see the world because at first I didn't want to believe a lot of things he was saying in the book. But as time went on, I couldn't really find counter arguments to what he was saying. So the more I thought about it, the more I realized, hey, this guy's really onto something. And the one place where I think he is really onto something is with China. So if you're not familiar with his arguments, I'm going to break down some of the core arguments that he makes in this episode and hopefully give it to you in a digestible format. So to make our case today, it's going to rely on three sort of interlocking points and they're all going to weave together into one argument. The first is that China is a very resource poor country itself in terms of at least a lot of basic resources that it needs and that it needs to have access to the world at large to trade for a lot of these basic goods. So essentially China cannot survive without the world trading with it at all times. 
Number two is that China's poor geographic location ensures that it cannot actually gain the geographic position that it needs to defend its trade points and defend its access to resources. So without that, they still cannot stand on their own two feet. And then number three is that its poor financial and demographic structure ensure that China cannot actually go out and gain the geographic advantages that it needs to protect its trade resources or the resources in and of themselves. Meaning that no matter which way you slice it, China has to be dependent on the world at large to survive. And if for whatever reason, these trade flows into China were disrupted, the whole system would come crashing down in quite a spectacular fashion. So let's start with the most basic one, food. China has serious food insecurity problems. And this is a statistic directly from Zion himself, which is that China has less arable farmland per person than Saudi Arabia. So because China has a lot of people, it needs a lot of food to feed those people. And despite the fact that China is the number one producer of rice in the world, it is also the number one importer of rice in the world. So let's show you what I mean here. Let me break down some very exciting graphs for you guys because everybody loves graphs. Who doesn't love graphs? Here is the list of countries by rice production. This is from Wikipedia and this is from 2019. In fact, it's a little bit, it's a little bit older than some of the other statistics I'm going to be showing you, but we can see right at the top, the number one producer of rice in the world is in fact China, followed by India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Myanmar, Philippines, Brazil, Cambodia, and then the United States and Japan rounding out the top of that list. However, this does not necessarily mean that much because even if you are producing this you know, colossal amount of rice, if you are not producing enough to feed your own people, how much does it really matter? In the same way that if you're making a lot of money but still spending a lot of money, you're still getting further and further into debt. So let us look at the major rice importing countries of the world and this is from 2021, 2022. And we can see right at the top of the list, China, number one, by a significant margin as the world's number one rice importer. So this means they are buying rice from other places, right? And then followed in number two, the Philippines, and then Nigeria, and then the European Union as a collective unit in number four. And then yeah, moving down, you've got a lot like Saudi Arabia, Nepal, Iran, Iraq, you know, a lot of places not known for having a lot of arable farmland, so would have to import a lot of food. But you would not think China being the number one by almost twice the amount of the number two country, which is the Philippines. If I ask you, which is the country that has to import the most amount of rice, which is the country that buys the most amount of rice from other countries, I highly doubt you would say China. And then just moving over to the other side, which country is the country which exports the highest amount of rice, which is India, massive exporter of rice, as you can see. And then right below that, you have Vietnam, Thailand, Pakistan, and then the United States. And that is very interesting. And then, in fact, the China does do some exporting of rice of their own. 
but it's nothing compared to a lot of these other countries. And it's not compared, nothing compared to the amount of rice that they have to import. So what's very interesting is the United States, the number one exporter of rice outside of Asia. And then of course, me being a rice aficionado, when a person who loves to eat rice, you know, I keep track of which countries they come from. And they come from generally one of three countries is India, usually especially for basmati rice particularly. Number two is Thailand. I don't see Vietnamese rice that often here. It's mostly Thai rice. And then number three is the United States. And what's interesting to think about is everyone talks about all this crap that's made in China and brought over here. But remember, yes, you are probably playing with some trinket manufactured in China. The guy in China just might be eating an American bowl of rice. And one of those things is a lot easier for your country to produce than the other. When push comes to shove, I'd much rather my country be able to produce the excess rice than the excess trinkets. And this is, of course, just rice. This isn't even getting into, I'm not sure what things look like this year, but over the last couple of years, China has had to call literally millions of pigs due to disease and other factors, which has obviously put a squeeze on a country that is already pinched for food. I'm not sure again if this year they have managed to recover in that sector, but obviously slaughtering millions of pigs you know, that aren't going to be used for food is a huge loss. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about where China gets its food from. Let us change it to white for the color of rice. Like we talked about, Thailand is a very big rice exporter. Vietnam as well. And then <laughs> once it, once they get outside of those two countries, India does do a lot of exporting of food to China, but not as much as it does to a lot of other places. A lot of Indian food exports end up going this way, not necessarily the other way. In fact, one of the things you may notice is a lot more Indian food products being bought and sold here. That's one thing I've noticed is a lot of dollar stores over the course of my lifetime. The food products on the shelves have switched from sort of Chinese or Vietnamese or manufactured to Indian manufactured. But in any case, that's just a personal, you know, random anecdote. So another place that China actually gets a lot of food is from Australia. Australia itself does do a lot. And this is mainly talking about things like wheat. That's another thing. China gets a lot of its food that is not rice oriented. Of course, you have Wheat coming in from Russia. We'll make it. We'll make it yellow. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, you have wheat coming in from Russia. You have wheat and rice coming in from Australia, and then across the ocean from the United States, you have wheat and rice from Canada and Mexico and the United States. Those three countries collectively, us three countries in North America collectively, export a ton of food to Asia. We export significantly more food than we need to sustain our populations here on the North American continent. And that the United States definitely leads the pack in terms of being a, a food exporter. So anyway, China brings in the food from a lot of these different countries. And a lot of them, they are not on the best terms with. And if they wanted to, these countries could deny them access to such basic goods such as food. And that would be absolutely devastating to the Chinese. But even more devastating would be its access to energy and particularly its access to oil. That is, if it were ever cut off 
for some reason or another by an outside power. So let's zoom out more and get the really big picture here because China is extremely weak to its energy sources being disrupted. While it does do decent enough in terms of domestic energy production, again, where it would really suffer is in terms of losing access to oil, obviously. A lot of cars in China, a lot of uh, goods and services in China need oil to function and need oil to continue to survive. And if that were disrupted for any reason, it would be an absolute disaster. So let's dive into this a little bit more and talk about where China gets a lot of its energy and gets a lot of its oil from. So again, we're going to pull out page marker here. The main source of oil for China comes from the country of Iran here. This is the number one plier of oil to China. In fact, China needs six super tankers. Here's my super tanker. <laughs> there it is. Times six of oil per day. Let's see, well, one day. So six of these every day have to come from Iran to China in order to keep the lights on and keep things functioning in that country. And let us take some time to examine the route that these oil tankers need to take. So obviously they come out of Iran here, they fuel on up, they come out of here, come out of the Straits of Hormuz. Hopefully this isn't too big of an issue for China. Once you get out of there, you have to sail around India, which is not exactly friendly to China. And we'll get into that more as time goes on. So they have to sail around India. And if India wanted to at any point, they could threaten this supply chain coming from China. That's just one of the countries that could threaten it on its journey. Moving along here, obviously, it has to come through the Straits of Malacca and around Singapore. This has been a huge trade choke point in human history. If I'm not mistaken, this is the number one area for trade volume in the world currently coming through here. Should anybody want to disrupt Chinese oil supply, all they would have to do is really crack down on here and they could do some serious damage. For example, if Australia wanted to, they could shoot missiles here and threaten Chinese trade. They could just basically aim missiles into the Strait of Malacca and blow up any Chinese ships that they wanted to and never have to risk their Navy, never have to risk their Air Force. And China could basically do nothing at that point to stop them. So there are a huge amount of perils there. And then that's not it, because even if you get past the straits here, you move into the South China Sea, then there are countries that China is not particularly friendly with. Number one being Vietnam. Of course, they could threaten Chinese shipping at any point. And then, of course, <laughs> that's not it, because usually most ships are going to unload here rather than in the south of China. So they're going to have to go past Taiwan. And of course, Taiwan, if they wanted to, can put pressure on Chinese shipping routes. So basically, there are three points in which this vital supply of oil to China could be disrupted by any one of its enemies and by any one of these people who may not have the best relationship with China. So if a war should actually happen or if some sort of 
escalation should happen and there would be a trade war, China could be brought to its knees very, very quickly. Not to use a video game analogy, but if you guys have played Victoria 3 at all, and you think about, God, I really hope somebody makes a modern day mod for Victoria 3, because I actually think it would be a pretty good way to simulate a lot of economic catastrophes, like what I'm talking about here, that essentially if you were playing China and a whole bunch of countries embargoed you, they started raiding your convoys, you couldn't get oil into your country, that's going to completely wreck things. Your GDP is going to crash. Your standard of living is going to crash. Your industries can no longer get this basic input that they need, which is oil. Things are going to go south very, very quickly. And you're going to have to try and find some way to gain access to this vital resource. And people might say, what about you know these other countries? Number one, of course, being Russia. And that's part of the reason why we're zoomed out here is because, yes, China does get a lot of energy from Russia. China will continue to get a lot of energy from Russia. And China and Russia will continue to increase its capacity to trade with China. The main thing is, is that Russia currently does not have the capacity to send enough energy to China to cover its actual needs. So a lot of people don't know exactly where the oil is in Russia and what exactly the Russian pipeline infrastructure looks like, but we can break it down a little bit here. Most of the kind of oil and natural gas that we're talking about exists here in the Ural area and Western Siberia. Oh, let's just draw like a big, big generic black, you know, here's oil, oil country for Russia. And most of the pipeline infrastructure in Russia has been built over the course of 50 years and goes west across the country into Europe, into other areas that have needed Russian energy supply uh, in the past and continue to have needed it in the future. Obviously, this has been a major geopolitical tool that Vladimir Putin has used in the war in Ukraine is the fact that Russia has access to large energy reserves and most of that energy infrastructure is pointed west. The West, the Western Europeans need that energy to continue functioning as a society, essentially. And then moving on, you have the other player, which is China. But the big issue is that for every four pipelines going west, Russia has one pipeline going to China type of thing. Actually, I don't even know if it would go through Mongolia. It would probably go through like here into Manchuria or something like that, down into here type of thing. Either way, what I'm saying here is that Russia simply does not have the energy capacity to ship the energy that China needs to keep functioning. Russia has already maxed out the amount of energy that it can ship to China already. It can't send any more. It doesn't have the capacity to send any more. The only thing it can do, and this is stuff that they are doing and will continue to do as time goes on, is increase the capacity, increase the pipeline infrastructure, headed eastwards, headed to China, headed to India, and continue to make money that way, as obviously the Western market is drying up considerably. So no matter which way you slice it, China needs to get the bulk of its energy from the Middle East, and the way it's going to get that 
is through maritime transport. Maritime transport, I've seen things said, I've seen figures bandied about between 7 to 20 times cheaper than land-based transport. This is, of course, true. And it has been, since the beginning of time, considerably cheaper to float goods rather than to transport them on land. Which brings me to the next point that a lot of people will try and bring up as a counter to how China is trying to escape this resource trap. They'll bring up the Belt and Road Initiative, which if is, if you guys don't know, the Belt and Road Initiative is an initiative that China has dreamed up basically to, through treaties, a series of treaties and trade deals, basically to export goods westward, recreating the sort of Silk Road from ye old olden times <laughs> to send their goods westward and of course to receive goods from the West into China. Again, the major issue with this is twofold. One, you will never, ever, ever have enough land-based capacity to cover the massive demands of China. So if you guys remember back in the day, back a couple years ago, when the Suez Canal got blocked and there was that, what was it, what was it, 10 days or something like that, that people were freaking out, couldn't move goods through the Suez Canal, and it was a major issue, major catastrophe. During that time, there was like a bunch of different solutions that people bandied about to try and solve this from happening in the future and try and prevent it from happening in the future. And one of the issues, or one of the potential solutions that was thrown out to this issue, to solve this issue, was essentially that Israel was going to create a workaround to the Suez Canal where ships would come up into here and they would basically unload at this port and then rail travel out into the Mediterranean. And <laughs> this was scrapped almost immediately after people started talking about it because the fact of the matter is that it would be so ridiculously inefficient that there is no way that they could ever create a corridor where you would unload from a super tanker, put it on a train, and then reload it onto a super tanker where that would be more efficient than simply sailing through the Suez Canal. So while the Belt and Road is a very innovative solution to a serious problem, the fact of the matter is that land-based transportation will simply not be enough to feed the insatiable demands of China's massive population. And then there's a secondary weakness to this, which is that in the case of an actual war breaking out or combat scenario, this kind of land-based infrastructure is significantly more vulnerable than maritime shipping. All you need to do is launch one missile, one airstrike, and blow up the pipeline, and you're hooped. One airstrike, you blow up the railway, you blow up the roads, and it's going to take a lot more time and effort to repair that and get things going than a ship that has access to the entire ocean and can effectively sail away and sail around land-based systems. So the main thing that China does have going for it is large deposits of rare earth minerals and rare earth materials. These are highly sought after in the making of batteries and other advanced electronical components. And that's nothing to be sneezed at, but as time is going on, those are becoming less and less valuable as other countries are starting to discover their own deposits 
just as what happened with oil, as that over time, more and more countries start to look for these materials, and they start to find these materials, and the existing deposits will become less relevant. So China's entire structure and their entire model is basically based off of bringing in cheap materials from where they can, using their cheap labor pool to manufacture those materials into something else, and then re-exporting those to the world at large. And should, for whatever reason, that flow of inputs be disrupted, that is, of course, what I'm talking about when you have that kind of major economic bottleneck, that economic crash. And should that happen, China would implode very quickly. That's not to say other countries which rely on cheap Chinese goods and cheap Chinese manufacturing wouldn't suffer as well, but they would not suffer anywhere near on the scale that China would. So you might say, okay, that's fine, that's good. But just so long as China can secure its access to these outside resources, it'll be okay. Unfortunately, China's geographic position makes that extraordinarily difficult. And the number one reason why that is, is this little island right here, which is, of course, oops, which is, of course, the island of Taiwan. There is a huge reason why China is obsessed with this island. Not only does it have nationalistic, symbolic purposes for the Chinese Communist Party, it has major strategic value to the Chinese in securing themselves and securing their trade routes for the long term. So let's just highlight Taiwan here. The big thing about Taiwan is that it's an island that cannot be sunk. And the one nice thing is that when you're on a landmass that cannot be sunk, you can attack naval vessels with land-based systems, and it's a lot harder for those naval systems to come and get you and come and hit you back. The big thing that the Navy has in advantage to you is that they could theoretically just move outside of your range, and then once they do that, there's nothing you can do. But Taiwan, being this close to China, and if they are not aligned to the Chinese Communist Party, has huge issues for them. Not only could they potentially strike mainland China with missiles and other weapons, but much more easily and much more realistically is that they can strike Chinese shipping pretty much at will. And if a real war ever broke out, you can, of course, bet your bottom dollar that you're going to have allies coming in. You're going to have the Japanese coming in who have a very powerful navy for a country that is technically not supposed to have a navy. You're going to have the Australians and New Zealanders coming in. And of course, Big Daddy USA, the biggest navy in the world, would potentially come to the aid of Taiwan. And then to a lesser degree, you have India as well, allied against China. They have an okay navy which they could use, especially to, if they're just using it to sink naval transports, just using it to sink convoys, then it is definitely up to that task. But it's not just Taiwan, which is against China in this region. Obviously, we talked about Japan. Let's put, uh, we'll put a big red X through countries that are not allied to China in this region. Obviously, China and Japan do not get along. They probably won't ever get along <laughs> for as long as we live. It's one of those, 
immovable objects meets an unstoppable force type of thing. Japan is not willing to apologize for the atrocities that it committed in World War II. It barely apologizes for Pearl Harbor. I remember when I went to the Imperial War Museum in Tokyo. It was a really fucked up experience because the section on Pearl Harbor is basically painting Japan as the victim. They're saying that basically they had no choice but to attack because the big mean Americans took away their oil and they needed that for the humanitarian mission that they were doing in China at the time. But yeah, Japan is never apologizing and China will never forgive them until they apologize. So that's off the table, essentially. South Korea, they are on better terms with, but still obviously a major U.S. ally, far more closely aligned with the United States than with China. So there's no way that they could rely on South Korea in any type of military conflict. The Philippines, interestingly, used to be very closely aligned with the United States, has become more neutral and more China aligned a little bit recently. That being said, they still would have a long way to go to really move into the Chinese column. So I still think that these are by and large, the Philippines are still by and large a Western ally. If someone from the Philippines would like to disagree, I'd love to hear from you guys if you have any kind of input or feeling for what people in the general public in these places are, are feeling and thinking about China. I'd love to hear it. But moving on to Vietnam, Vietnam is super interesting. In fact, Vietnam and America just recently held their first joint military exercises. So despite the fact that America and Vietnam just recently had a war in most of our lifetimes, the fact of the matter is that Vietnam has been invaded by pretty much all of its neighbors at some point, including China, multiple times. And Vietnam has taken bites out of China as well when it's been in its stronger phases throughout its history. So these two countries have a long, long standing, long standing history of animosity towards one another. And right now they are not on good terms. So there's no way that China could rely on Vietnam. And then we get to some of these other ones here. When it comes to Indonesia, Indonesia is interesting. I think that they're pretty much neutral, although Indonesia does rely on countries like Japan for a lot of infrastructure and a lot of skilled uh, you know, engineers and stuff like that come over from Japan and move and help the Malaysian, or excuse me, help both the Malaysian and Indonesian governments build up their infrastructure in there. But right now, by and large, I think Indonesia is pretty neutral. I don't think they're at all interested in any kind of war, any kind of shooting match. And if there was, I don't think that they would get involved. And that includes poor as well. Point in the world is very reliant on trade. So they would not have anything to benefit from war happening in the South Pacific. If some military conflict did happen, some war did break out, trade is being shut down in this area almost instantly. It's going to become extremely risky to trade in this area, which is going to hurt China most of all, but obviously it would hurt a lot of the other countries in the region as well. But moving over, we do have India which, as I said before, is not an ally of China. These two have a long-standing history of animosity. Oops, you guys can't see that as well, so I'll move it over here. We'll move the map here in a bit. So China and India have long-standing history of animosity. They've fought quite a few border skirmishes over various disputed territories in the north. Doesn't look like China and India are going to get on good terms anytime soon. 
India is facing towards the West in a big way, being a little bit more in tune with the way Indian people think. They see the United States as their great ally. They see the United States as a very close partner. However, interestingly enough, another country that the Indians look to in partnership is Russia. The two countries have a very intertwined economic partnership. And it's actually been strained. Relations between India and the West have been strained because India is fence-sitting on the war in Ukraine and in some cases pro-Russian because they have a deep-seated economic relationship that India is not willing to jettison. India is not severing ties with Russia. And this is leaving a bad taste in a few people's mouths over here in the West. But that being said, when it comes to China, India will always back the West when it comes to China. They have no interest in working with this country. I think what India really wants to do most of all is they want to see themselves as the number one power and the number one player in the Asian region. And they can't do that until they take out China. And then, of course, off the map, you have New Zealand and you have Australia, both of whom are New Zealand's being a little bit more conciliatory, but that is changing as the New Zealand population is not happy, I think, with the stance that the government has taken with China and Australia was also being a little bit more conciliatory. But in recent years, they have become much more hawk hawkish with China. Both of these countries are advanced economies with strong navies. And as we mentioned before, Australia itself has the capacity to just shoot missiles at Chinese shipping and shut it down without having to risk their navy at all. So when it comes to facing the Pacific Ocean, China has a lot of geographical constraints. They are hemmed in by a lot of countries that do not like them and don't really have a possibility of liking them anytime in the future. And not to mention a lot of these countries are substantial naval powers. And while China does have a growing navy, it's not gonna compare to the combined navies of India, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, the United States. But uh, let's move out here for a sec because China does have some allies in the region. And while they don't tip the balance in their favor, they are certainly worth considering. So obviously the number one ally that they have is North Korea. Let's put it there we go. Oh, no, 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 you know what we'll do? Do the circle, do the Japanese way. Well, anyway, so yeah, North Korea is an ally. China has a huge interest in keeping North Korea as their ally. They don't want a Western-aligned country having a foothold right on their border. So North Korea is going to remain one of their staunchest allies for as long as China can keep it that way. Mongolia itself is being torn between China, Russia, and the United States, so they could go anyway. But another big ally that China can rely on is Pakistan. Pakistan and India are not exactly friends, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so China can always rely on Pakistan as an ally to their interests in Asia. And actually, a lot of these countries, China has done a great job in hemming India in on a regional scale. For example, Nepal, Bhutan, and Bangladesh and to a lesser extent, Myanmar, are all pro-China allied states, and China can exert leverage on them, which they can then use to exert on India in turn. One of the big things that a lot of people have talked about is the potential for China to build dams in the Himalayas, 
which would essentially cut off a massive supply of water, which would cut off India's food production by a considerable margin. And obviously this is something that India is not just going to let happen. So there is at some point got to be some sort of agreement happening there because India is just not going to lie back and die. But at the same time, China does not show any interest in stopping its infrastructure projects in the Himalayas. So that could definitely boil over into a serious issue at any time. And then outside of there, I would also probably put like Laos and Cambodia are Chinese aligned. I don't think Thailand, I feel like Thailand is a lot more neutral, but outside there, one country that 10 years, not 10 years ago, two years ago, if you would ask me, where does Kazakhstan stand? I would say that they are heavily in the Russian camp. Russia has a huge vested interest in keeping Kazakhstan as a part of their sphere. However, since the war in Ukraine has started, Kazakhstan appears to be drifting away from the Russian sphere of influence and looking eastwards towards the Chinese. And this could definitely be a thing development moving into the future is if China was able to bring Kazakhstan into its sphere, into its fold, that would certainly help with its Belt Road Initiative. But Kazakhstan also has a large amount of natural resources. They have pretty decent energy reserves. So that could help China also with its resource problem. So while China does have some advantages, the fact of the matter is it's not going to be enough to overcome their numerous disadvantages. That is, unless they were able to do one thing, and that is if they were able to take Taiwan, I would say the game changes almost entirely. So because Taiwan is not aligned with mainland China, this really hems China into what people call the first island chain, which is essentially this area right here. Basically, China can't really exert its power outside of it and therefore defend its precious trade routes and precious resources outside of it. However, if China were able to flip Taiwan into its sphere, whether it's outright taking it, it's changing the government, however it does it, however it flips Taiwan over to the Chinese side, things then change considerably because now if this, if Taiwan is now owned by China, now it can basically protect all of its shipping routes down here much easier. It eliminates that choke point heading up into to Shanghai, which is again, China's major port and where most of its shipping goes into. But most importantly of all is that taking of Taiwan allows it to project its power out to they call the second island chain and even potentially out into the wider Pacific Ocean. So let's take the eternal rivalry between China and Japan. Currently, unless China is able to secure Taiwan, exacting any kind of realistic revenge on Japan is a fantasy. There's no way they can do it, despite the fact that Japan has some similar weaknesses to China in the sense that it relies on the outside world for both food and energy. The one thing it does have that China does not is great ports, which are very difficult to blockade and strong relationships with trading partners in which they get that food and energy from. While it would be extremely easy for any number of countries to blockade China, it would be very difficult for China to blockade Japan in turn. And the main reason is 
is for the ports of Tokyo and Osaka, as these are both ports which face the open ocean, meaning that they are far more difficult to blockade. And that's for two reasons. One is that maintaining any kind of naval force out here in the middle of the ocean is taxing, it's expensive, and you can't really do it that long before you have to bring your ships back in for resupply and that kind of stuff. So you need a large naval supremacy to consider blockading ports like this. But because they also face out into the open ocean, it means that ships trying to run the blockade have a lot more options in terms of which way they can go. The ocean is open to them. So it's hard to blockade in such open waters and it's easier for people to try and run the blockade simultaneously. So it's a very difficult thing to do. And without Taiwan, it's a fantasy for China to ever do something like that. However, if China does secure Taiwan, all of a sudden, while this isn't, you know, exactly going to happen, it enters the realm of possibility. All of a sudden, Japan needs to sweat a little bit because if China were able to amass enough naval supremacy, they could easily supply it from Taiwan to potentially blockade <laughs> just, just drawn all kinds of ridiculous crap. But yeah, they could potentially supply a blockade from Taiwan and really put Japan into the pinch that currently China is in as we're speaking. But without that key point, it's really not even worth having this conversation. So Taiwan is a central pivot point to the Chinese and there's a reason why they're obsessed with it and they, they can't stop talking about it and why they want it so desperately. So that brings us through point one and point two. Point two is that China's poor geographic position, particularly in reference to the Pacific, makes it very difficult for it to secure its access to the outside world. But the third point, and this is the one that guys like Zaihan really drive home, and this is one you've probably heard a lot, which is China's crumbling demographics. And this is true. There's definitely no way to get around it. China's demographics are in a very poor state. And the reason why is this is the revenge of the one-child policy. Can't just go multiple decades where you only allow families to have one child and then not reap the rewards, quote-unquote, that that will give you at a future point in time. There's going to come a point in time where you're going to have a glut of old people and not enough young people to replace them because you only had one kid. There's only one potential kid to replace two people and the math there unfortunately just doesn't work out. And now we are seeing the chickens really come home to roost on this one because let's just go a couple major points that have happened in the last year or so on the issue of Chinese demographics. First off, this is a report from May of last year. It's from the Wilson Center. Median age in China has surpassed that of the United States. I'll just briefly read the top headline here. In 2020, the median age in China was 38.4 years, which surpassed that of the United States for the first time in modern history. Back in 1978, China's median age, 21.5 years. Obviously, time has not been kind to that age point. 
but it's a very brief article. But basically what it's saying is that now essentially the average Chinese person is going more likely to be older than the average American person. This is the first time this has ever happened. And this is only going to get worse as time goes on because in 2023, for the first time in, what was it, 60 years, China reports a falling population. And uh, the New York Times has a very grabby headline heralding a demographic crisis. And honestly, it's not wrong. It's going to be, it's going to be rough. And think about what's happening in Japan and times that by 10 or 20, maybe 50, right? It's going to be a lot worse. You know, you think about Japan, which is aging about as gracefully as one could hope, given their current demographics. And think about how that is going to affect China in comparison to Japan. I think it's going to affect China a lot worse just by the virtue of the fact that there's so much more Chinese people, which means that the economic crunch is going to be that much harder. So let's just quickly read this. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail here. The world's most popular, populous, not the world's most popular, the world's most populous country has reached a pivotal moment. China's population has begun to shrunk after a steady years long decline in birth rates that experts say is irreversible. The government said on Tuesday that 9.56 million people were born in China last year. 10.41 million people died, almost a million person deficit. It was the first time that deaths had outnumbered births in China since the Great Leap Forward, Mao Zedong's failed economic experiment that led to widespread famine and death in the 1960s. Chinese officials have tried for years to slow down the arrival of this moment, loosening the one-child policy, offering incentives to encourage families to have children. None of these policies have worked, and they are now facing a population in decline. Coupled with the long-running rise in life expectancy, the country is being thrust into a demographic crisis that will have consequences not just for China, but the economy of the world. The main point that you guys need to know is that China's population has marked a decline. This is the first time since the 1960s. And this is only going to continue to get worse and worse for China to the point where I don't know exactly at what point China will settle in, what population it will settle at. I think it'll probably settle around maybe 800 million at that point, And then things will just reach a nice equilibrium is what I expect to happen. I expect something to happen similar to happen in Japan. We'll probably reach an equilibrium around 80 million people and then just hold things there. There's a real big reason why this matters and why I think this is going to have a huge impact. I know we're getting off into maybe speculation territory at this point, but I do really believe that in that sort of embedded in the cultural practice of the Chinese people and in the way that they view their leadership and their leadership's role in their society is I still think that that mandate of heaven is in their cultural DNA, if you will. For those of you who may not know, in Chinese historical practice, there has been this idea of the mandate of heaven. And what the mandate of heaven is, is this concept that is if things are going well in the government and things are going well in society, essentially that is the celestial cosmos, the powers that be giving their thumbs up to the leader. And they're saying, you know what? This guy is doing good. 
You don't need to change anything. The heavens are smiling on him. He's got the mandate from us. You know, we think he's a good guy. He's doing well. You guys don't need to rock the boat. Just keep going on. Just keep going as you're going. Leave this guy in charge and things will stay the way that they are and everything's going to be hunky-dory. And with that assumption, the people kind of have this implicit idea that if things are going well, we're not going to change things. If things are going well, there's no reason to change things because things could get worse, essentially. And we've seen things get worse in the past. So don't rock the boat. Things are good now. Let's leave them the way they are. And this kind of thinking is definitely built into the way a lot of people still view China and view the relationship with the Chinese public and the Communist Party. Essentially, they will say that there is this unwritten rule that so long as things are going good, our standard of living is improving, there's growth in the economy, our lives are getting better, we're not going to mess with you guys. You guys can pretty much do whatever you want. We don't need to be politically involved. Just so long as things are getting better, keep doing what you're doing. That is essentially the mandate of heaven in its modern form. So I truly do believe that the Communist Party is going to lose that mandate of heaven very shortly. And then the question is, what exactly does that look like? What does it look like when a Chinese system loses the mandate of heaven? If you've looked at Chinese history, what always happens is that things implode and things implode very quickly. In fact, they almost always seem to implode at a point when China is at its most powerful. China is at its peak in terms of wealth and prestige and landmass owned. And then all of a sudden, you know, the mandate collapses and things implode. That's what happened with the Han Dynasty. And that's what happened with the Great Qing Dynasty. And I think we're going to see it again happen with the Chinese Communist Party. So in Chinese history, when that collapse happens, it tends to happen from an out, outside perspective. It tends to happen quickly. And it tends to happen at a time when people are thinking like, hey, this country looks like it's at its most prosperous and its most prestigious and its most powerful. What the heck happened here? Why did things collapse so quickly? Because once the Chinese people sense that that mandate is gone, they're going to rock that boat. <laughs> they're going to rock it as much as they deem necessary until someone is able to regain that mandate and bring things back together to the point where things were things were going well like they used to be. And one of the things with this population decline, with this demographic decline, that indicates a GDP decline in turn. And that can indicate, that doesn't always herald, but it certainly can indicate a loss in standard of living subsequent to that. And one of the things in China that is very popular, and maybe you guys have heard this before, is that one of the ways that Chinese seniors particularly try and save money or try and make investments is they try and buy these little condos, try and buy these little houses, maybe in other up and coming areas in China. So they try and buy these apartments and then rent them out. And then sometimes groups of people will come together and they'll pull their money and they'll buy one of these apartments. But what happens when your population starts to decline, guess what? All of a sudden you don't need these apartments. There's not as many people filling these apartments. And all of a sudden, you've got all these seniors that have taken their money and pooled it into this investment, which is going to become less and less valuable because there's less and less people 
out there to pick up these apartments. So with things declining, that is going to, I think, start a real chain reaction, particularly in this housing bubble that a lot of Chinese seniors are sitting on that is going to pop in a way that's going to make 2008 look like child's play. So I don't know what the future looks like for China. I don't know when this dam is going to break. But what I do feel is that a period of enormous change is coming for the country. And I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. I do think that when all things are said and done and when everything shakes out, China will endure. China will come back together and the Chinese people will always be a factor in human civilization and human history. But I do think they are headed for a period of turmoil in a way that a lot of other places just are not. Anyway, with this coming demographic decline, I don't see it as a realistic possibility that China could use military force to solve any of these issues. I don't think it could take Taiwan by military force. That's just me personally. The only thing I could see them doing is maybe they find some sort of way to escalate things into an embargo and you have some sort of Cuban missile crisis scenario where they force governmental change. I don't know. That's the most realistic possibility that I can see that China is able to exert power over Taiwan. But until that happens, China is stuck in a real bind. So I do think it's quite possible that within the next couple of years, they do lash out and do try and make a play for Taiwan, but we shall see. And just like usual in Chinese history, there will probably be a period of turmoil and then a phoenix from the ashes, a new system will be born from it. And uh, who knows what things will look like then. But yeah, in any case, that brings us to the end of our discussion on China. So let's see if we can find a good feel good story and wrap up the episode. So we're going to end our episode on this feel good story. I'm thinking this is from a new paper or something because it's got some weird grammatical errors and some bizarre pictures that once you guys see, you will not be able to unsee. So that's why we're using this source for this story. That being said, what are we talking about here today? So our feel-good story is something that I picked up on recently and I want to share with you guys. But basically, this is a Swedish robotic firm, which has engineered this robotic wing, which they intend to eventually use to put onto drones, where they're trying to essentially use flapping wings to mimic the flight of birds for drones and fly more efficiently and more aerodynamically which is terrifying, but also awesome at the same time. <laughs> the, the idea of these like robotic birds, you know, flying around delivering packages and stuff like that. Although what I think is probably more realistic in terms of what we'd actually see in the future is I just finally watched Dune 2021, which it's tough to find the time to actually just sit down and watch a three hour movie like that. But we finally found the time. And what I think is much more realistic is like what they have in that movie. And this is not really a spoiler, but they use ships that are basically like they look like dragonflies, like giant dragonflies to fly around. And I think something like that is probably more realistic than a giant bird, just because it probably be easier to engineer and maintain from our perspective. But that being said, 
let's jump into what exactly we have here for us. I'm talking about this way I meant by weird picture, like this one of Vladimir Putin and the Space Marine helmet. I what the fuck. Anyway, the goal of improving drone agility and versatility has directed the attention of many roboticists towards flapping flight, a mode of locomotion used by nature's active flyers. Exultant among flying animals, birds are the largest and arguably have the most efficient, making them particularly interesting as inspiration for drones. However, determining which flapping strategy is best requires aerodynamic studies of various ways of flapping wings. Therefore, a Swedish-Swiss research team has constructed a robotic wing that can achieve just that, flapping like a bird and beyond. This biohybrid robotic wing is partially built from real feathers with more advanced kinematic capacities than previous robotic wings and similar to those of a real bird. We have built a robotic wing that can flap more like a bird than previous robots, but also flap in a way that birds cannot. By measuring the performance of the wing in our wind tunnel, we have studied how different ways of achieving that wing upstroke area force the energy in flight, says Christopher Johansson, a biology researcher at Lund. In their previous studies, researchers have shown birds flap their wings more horizontally when flying slowly. The new study shows that birds probably do it even though it requires more energy because it is easier to create a sufficiently large force to stay aloft and propel themselves. This is something drones can emulate to increase the range of speeds they can fly at. And there you go. And they talk about weird things like I don't understand what this guy's doing with his eggs. Just put a bunch of, I feel like in my in my head, this guy just like pours gasoline on his eggs and then like lights it with a blowtorch. Yeah. Anyway, that that's that. The results indicate that wing folding during upstroke not only favors thrust production as expected, but also reduces force specific aerodynamic power, indicating a strong selection pressure on protobirds to evolve upstroke wing folding. It has shown that thrust requirements likely dictate the wing stroke tilting. Okay, yeah, we'll just finish this off. The team says that their results can also be used in other research areas, such as a better understanding of how migration of birds is affected by climate change and access to food. There are also many potential uses for drones where these insights can be put to good use. One area might be using drones to deliver goods. Flapping drones can be used for delivery, but they would need to be efficient enough to lift the extra weight that that entails. How the wings move is one of great importance for that performance. So this is where our research could come in handy. It includes Christopher Johansson. Anyway, I just thought that this was a cool little thing for you guys, like this idea of the robotic wings and drones with potentially like robotic wings. Obviously, I don't think that they look like bird wings, but essentially the idea that you could future drones have some sort of prosthetic wing and maybe prosthetic feathers. I don't know if we'd need prosthetic feathers or you create some sort of like Vulcan, like Vulcan like apparatus on the drone or that it can use to propel itself upwards. But I guess what it's saying is basically that when the drone is flying, if it had the capacity to have some sort of flapping wings, it could just like flap and then use that force to basically propel itself up a little bit and not have to worry so much about its battery capacity and, and use that battery capacity for other things. Essentially, it could also use it for gliding purposes. So you could flap up 
and then glide, and then flap, and then glide, and it would be much more efficient than the systems that we have now. So anyway, I thought that was a cool little story to end this week's episode for you guys, talking about like random stuff, no drama this week, nothing like that. Today, we just talked about all politics, all economics, all the time, and uh, that will bring us to the end of yet another episode of Chatter in the Skull. So with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. It's been a comrade signing off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.